out the beach towels and bag the best spot. Welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's, a new podcast in which we plan to put the Realpolitik and the Eröffnungsdiskussionsorgien into the world of podcasting. Our plan is to untangle the Anglos from the Saxons, the Bosch from the Britishers and the Tommies from the Jerry's. Each week we'll discuss the past and present of Anglo-German relations. What makes us different? And what makes us sometimes painfully similar? No stereotype is too awkward. No war will be left unmentioned. It's time to do our bit for post-Brexit friendship. Right. Today, leaders. From Disraeli complaining about Bismarck's Rabelaisian monologues and ogre-like form, to Boris Johnson barging in front of Angela Merkel on live television. Why have German chancellors and British prime ministers so seldom hit it off? There certainly have been plenty of episodes of terrible personal chemistry, but there's clearly something else going on too. Over the last 150 years since Germany became a country, prime ministers and chancellors have repeatedly failed to get along, despite often having very similar political views and overlapping national interests. Let's start with a list of national stereotypes about one country compiled in secret by the other country's most powerful foreign policy official. Aggressiveness assertiveness, sentimentality and inferiority complex, self-obsession, an inclination to self-pity and a longing to be liked. Katja, does that sound more like the Germans or the Britons to you? Well, as that would make a great Twitter bio for me, I presume this is referring to the Germans. <laughs> it is. It's um, actually from the um, secret minutes of a meeting of historians at Chequers. Um, called by Margaret Thatcher in 1990 and written up by her um, foreign policy advisor, Charles Pohl. And um, it's just a sign of how utterly, utterly broken the relationship was between Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister of the day, and Helmut Kohl, her German counterpart. Yeah, I mean, Margaret Thatcher's... uh you know, hatred, you have to really say, of the Germans has, has got almost, you know, pathological dimensions to it. It's so irrational and so um, emotionally sort of loaded almost that, you know, you've got to ask really what's behind that. I suppose in fairness to Margaret Thatcher, you know, given that she was born in the 1920s and sort of, you know, grew up in the aftermath um, of the economic fallout of the, you know, First World War caused by Germany, then had to live through another war caused by Germany. Um, and then, you know, even when she, when she sort of takes over the country and, and, you know, does most of her political work in the 1980s, you could argue a lot of the, you know, economic legacy is still there. Britain is still very much pockmarked by, you know, German bombing. So, you know, you can kind of see where she's coming from with her with her scepticism there. I thought you were about to say, in fairness to Margaret Thatcher, the Germans really are aggressive and self-pitying. <laughs> there is something to that as well, I guess. And, and perhaps Helmut Kohl reinforced a lot of these uh, stereotypes, I guess. You know, he wasn't only, I think, you know, a, a typical German in many ways. You know, people associate, obviously, the, you know, the famous um, sour magen meal with him. You know, this kind of sausage-like, you know, stuffed, like, meat thing that he loved to eat that was typical for the, for the palatine. It's a haggis, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's kind a German of. haggis. Kind of. It's, it's literally like sort of, you know, meat, sausage meat kind of stuffed into the stomach of a, of a pig. So it's, it's delicious, but <laughs> it's not everyone's cup of tea. And, and the fact that he invites foreign or invited foreign, you know, sort of guests... It, there to to have that with them i think just reinforce people's stereotypes of them for the, the for the benefit of listeners who've never encountered the zoomargen before um helmut kohl came from the southwest german state of rhineland palatinate 
and um, he used to take world leaders back to um, the restaurant in his hometown, Didersheim, um, and where they'd sort of feast on southwest German regional delicacies. And I've seen the menu from the night he took Thatcher there to try and charm her, and um, it was Zauermagen and uh, potato soup and steamed noodles, which which sounds exactly like the kind of thing you'd pull out if you wanted to <laughs> yeah, indeed, impress the, another world leader. And he himself just, you know, in his own person, just reinforced that as well. I know most people know that he was sort of quite, you know, chunky, big sort of, you know, burly type of, of man. But he was also huge. He was nearly two metres tall. I don't know what that is in feet and inches. You'll have to help me here. Six, four, something like that. Um, but yeah, a huge bloke, and then he sort of sits there and invites people around to to Sauermagen. Have you ever had it? I've never had Sauermagen. No, I mean, it's not really. A th- it's quite hard to guess it in Berlin. Mm. Um, Berlin has plenty of disgusting German specialities, but but I've never seen Sauermagen on the menu. <laughs> well, there's one for you. How about on, you? For your list? Uh, yes, I have. But you know, coming coming from that area myself, I you know I'm from just outside of Berlin. It's just not something that would have been you know, on my plate every day either. Um, you know, I have to disappoint you there, but I have tried it and I've, you know, because it is a sausage type thing in the end, you know, they're, they're all delicious really as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> it wouldn't have put me off as much as it did uh, Margaret Thatcher. Um, but there were political reasons as well there, weren't there, for their for their enmity. Yeah, so just, just to recap, Thatcher, the sort of quintessential reforming post-war British Conservative Prime Minister and... Helmut Kohl, um, the chancellor who oversaw German reunification and dominated Germany's kind of conservative party, the Christian Democratic Union or CDU, for 25 years. It wasn't necessarily destined to be a terrible relationship, and yet it turned into one. Yeah, I think there's the, the unification is perhaps one of the you know key things that they really clashed over. The idea to Margaret Thatcher, you know, like I was saying before, coming from the background that that she did, of not only a resurgent West Germany, you know, which had become a the dominant um, sort of political and and economic force again on the continent, but the idea that it would reunite with the East and and still you know like it had before sit there in the center of europe menacingly sort of you know looking east and west of itself and and being just this overbearing center of gravity of you know that sort of sucks everything into its orbit in in europe i think that was something that didn't just frighten thatcher but perhaps struck a particular uh, chord with her is it the same the other way around was do you think cole was as sort of you know wary of thatcher as as it was the other way around Cole was a historian, and um, I think he found Thatcher's reading of history really primitive. He once described her, I think maybe in his memoirs, as pre-Churchillian and himself as post-Churchillian. And what I think he meant by that was that Thatcher had a very 19th century view of Europe as being a matter of balancing powers, which is why she even tried to seek to make an alliance with the dying USSR and Gorbachev to sort of balance out the the resurgent Germany. Whereas um, Kolb had this view that, you know, the new Europe had been forged um, and that this was going to be the, the sort of guarantor of the continent's security. And he just couldn't make Thatcher understand that this was where 
Britain and Germany's mutual interests lay. There's this um, lovely anecdote about, I think on the same trip with the, where the, the Zauermarken happened, um, he took her to um, Speyer Cathedral near his hometown, which was built by the Holy Roman emperors and this sort of symbol of um, how that part of Germany is also French and there are all these layers of overlapping European history. And he wanted to show her that when he was German, he was also European. And all she saw when she looked at it was just a metaphor for the ultimate failure of all plans to try and unite Europe. Yeah, and perhaps also for for earlier incarnations of, you know, sort of German empires and and German, you know, hegemony, I suppose, over the continent as well. It's it it really is an interesting one, because I I don't think there's any argument historical or political or economic that you could have put forward to convince her that German unification was a good idea. I mean, even by the time that he'd convinced, you know, Kohl had convinced Gorbachev um, and and Reagan was naturally, you know, in in favour of 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 reunification in in America but even after everyone you know had sort of ganged up on Thatcher and told her that that she had just have to accept that she still had you know reservations and didn't um, particularly look forward to the idea of of um, a unified Germany I think there is just that element there of of irrational and and perhaps you know somewhat emotionally charged uh, reservations on her on her side yeah and bless Cole he really tried um, there's a document that popped up in the um, British National Archives a couple of years ago, where it showed that he had offered to give Thatcher access to secret papers on his plans for reunification, not not, not even his own cabinet ministers had seen. And um, my favourite thing I I learned when I was doing the research for this episode is, um, you probably knew this, but there's a very famous picture of Thatcher uh, driving along in a Challenger tank with a British flag flying and she's got her goggles on and her scarf um, is sort of trailing in the wind behind her and she looks like the absolute warrior queen <laughs> and this really sort of almost like a Britannia-style nationalistic figure. But when you um, look at the zoomed-out version of that photo, it was actually taken on a British military base in West Germany and right next to her, there's Cole trundling along on his own um, <laughs> Leopard 2 German battle tank with a German flag. Um, and it was clearly some effort to sort of try and give them like a fun day out together and all that it's remembered for is just, just this symbol of British national. <laughs> yeah, and that's probably exactly how she would have liked it as well. <laughs> so I guess in many ways he's given her the experience that you know she was looking forward to, only not in the way that he'd intended. And um, by the end, sorry, just while we're on the National Archives, um, things have got so bad that um, there's this paper that, that turned up showing um, that Cole had made a formal request not to talk to Thatcher anymore um, and to talk to um, the Foreign Secretary, Douglas Hurd, instead. And Thatcher had just scribbled on it in massive capital letter handwriting. No! <laughs> she wanted to torture him to the, to the very end. Well, it but, is, it is um, funny as well how much the, the diplomats on both sides were worried about it as well. You see that in all of the, you know, as you were saying, in the archival, you know, evidence and everywhere. It's just just how embarrassed they, they were on both sides, you know, of, of kind of what they might say next to each other. Because they made no effort to hide that either. Thatcher in particular was kind of openly hostile. You see that on all of the photographs where they're photographed together, you know, how she's got this sort of almost... Um, you know, forced grin basically on her face, but always with this kind of, you know, underlying hostility literally written on her face as well. Um, and, and diplomats are bit by bit becoming, you know, ever more worried about what they might do or say next the next time that they that they meet. So, you know, this was never going to 
end particularly well. I think the only thing that Kohl had going in his favour is that both Gorbachev and, and Reagan were, were happy with things. And once they'd convinced the French uh, to go along with unification as well, it, you know, it sort of paved the way whether Thatcher liked it or not. But she was never going to sign up to the idea herself or to, you know, befriending Kohl in any particularly meaningful manner. So how much do you think this really toxic relationship reflects the clash of two British and German leaders' personal ideologies and how much of it might actually reflect more um, deeper differences in the background between two parties that have been really dominant in in Europe in the post-war era and are both on the centre-right and yet, especially around that time, also had a lot of really profound ideological differences. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the people... And and I do this myself quite a lot as well. I actually, call the Christian Democrats in Germany the Conservative Party because they are socially fairly conservative. Um, in that, for instance, they you know they'd rather, for instance, for for years and years they paid uh, women to stay at home when they had children, for example, rather than extending childcare for younger children because the idea of a of a sort of nuclear family was still even well into the you know 1980s and even into the 1990s that, that women should stay at home and look after the children. So in that sense, they are conservative. But they are also economically not uh, liberals in the way that you know the, the Conservative Party is in Britain. And so they're quite happy for state intervention to happen, for, for subsidies to be given out to industry and, and that sort of thing. And so when you look, for instance, at, at the way that Thatcher approached um, you know, the decline in the coal industry, for example, with a sort of you know, iron and, and determined uh, idea of uh, laissez-faire capitalism. If it doesn't economically work, it doesn't work, and, and it doesn't matter what the social consequences are. It, you know, it, it needs to just be let go of. Whilst Germany kept subsidising both coal and steel, um, you know, for years, even after Conservative, or even with under Conservative leadership. So the idea that they're entirely ideologically aligned, I think, is, is sort of flawed from the off. And Europe too. Um, because the um, well, what became the European Community, the European Coal and Steel Community, was founded largely by Christian Democratic leaders: Adenauer from Germany, um, De Gaulle in France, um, Gaspardi from Italy, um, and there was this ver- this, uh, this founding idea that um, the European Community was, a, in a sense, a Christian democratic project. And I get the sense that. There would never really was a point in the history of um, the British Tory party when they were fully signed up for it in the same way that the, the, the Christian Democrats in Germany and other countries were. Yeah, and I think in part that also boils down to what I was just saying about the willingness or not to politically interfere with, with markets and, and with society. Because ultimately the, the German Conservative Party, the you know CDU, they're, they're fairly happy with the idea of further and further, you know, integrating markets and, and also using this political power that, that that gives them to shape society. And you see this in the EU now as well. The idea that they can create a different society with different ideological outlooks by intervening with what, you know, how people's lives work. That's totally alien to, to many people in the in the Conservative Party in this country. And I think that was already beginning to uh, shape up as a conflict, I think, particularly with somebody or with, with two individuals like Hall and Thatcher kind of being at, at opposite ideological um, ends of the same spectrum, of, on that conservative spectrum, as it were. Right, I think we should take a short break here. We'll be back in a minute. 
Welcome back to Tommy's and Jerry's, the Anglo-German podcast with plenty of putsch and hopefully not too much piffle. While we're here in future episodes, we'd very much like to talk about your questions, comments or even corrections. So do please get in touch with us over Twitter. Our handle is at Tommy's Jerry's. We'll post the subject of each week's episode a few days in advance so that you can get your suggestions in early. Now, back to the subject of this episode, 150 years of choppy waters between Britain's Prime Ministers and Germany's Chancellors. We've just been discussing the car crash relationship between Helmut Kohl and Margaret Thatcher. Katja, surely things have got better since then. Well, they should have done, um, because when when this sort of time period of, of conservative... Um, dominance comes to an end you basically get social democratic uh, governments in both Britain and and Germany with Tony Blair coming into power and and Gerhard Schröder pretty much simultaneously Blair is uh, 97 isn't he when he comes into power Uh, and Gerhard Schröder is 1998 Um, and initially that it looks like the two are going to get on very well with each other so um, they they publish a, a manifesto together which is called Die Neue Mitte uh, in German, or I think it's the third way in English, um, yeah. which they, they published together. And the idea is that, that they can basically pull social democracy further towards the center um, and create, in effect, a, a more um, yeah liberal-leaning and, and, and less sort of leftist way of, of making social democratic uh, politics work for the masses and that seems initially to work and they're all, also quite similar in their leadership styles so Blair and Schroeder um, kind of lean heavily on their on their charisma and on their pull on on wide kind of swathes of the population that wouldn't have naturally perhaps voted for them but like them personally and so effectively end up um, supporting them so it, it should have worked. How much of the fact that it didn't work is possibly just down to Gerhard Schröder being a really difficult guy? <laughs> That's an interesting one, because I think you hear this from a lot of people that have worked with him, that this kind of joviality that he portrays outward is actually not reflected by by the style in which he conducts himself, you know, internally leading teams and, and so on. He has got this image in Germany with the public still, despite the um, various political scandals that... that um, you know, happened around him, that, you know, he's a he's a guy that you can sit down with and have a beer with, and, and quite, you know, famously he did so on, on various occasions. But, of course, you know, people that have worked with him said that actually, no, he can be quite a, a difficult man to work with. But I think, again, it, it boils down to ideology and underlying issues. They, their policies weren't as similar as you, you know, might think. Whilst Blair was very, very firmly wed to the West, uh, particularly in American uh, politics, Schroeder was of the opinion uh, that Germany sits in the center of Europe and ought therefore look both ways, east and west. And he famously, um, you know, obviously made very dodgy dealings with Russia. Sat on the uh, as a chair, I think, even on on the on the board of Gazprom. Um, you know, and then initiated these very, very close links that are still haunting Germany now with Nord Stream 2, uh, the, that gas pipeline from, from Russia to Germany, and so on. All of that is, is something that Blair and Schröder clash over. My um, favourite story about Schröder is that um, when he was still in opposition, he went out drinking with some of his social democrat pals um, in, uh, it would have been Bonn at the time, in the 90s, I think. Mm. Yep, um, until the late 90s, and, yeah, when um, they moved. And uh, they, they, they sort of got pretty merry and ended up somehow um, outside the, um, the German 
chancellery and um, Schroeder sort of put one hand on so both hands on the railings and started shaking the railings of the chancellery and shouting ich will da rein i want to get in there <laughs> and i just think i've always thought there was something really elemental and even a little bit scary about him yeah and i think that that came across with a lot of people you do hear that a lot where people thought oh i thought he was a friendly jolly guy because he always sold himself successfully as such and then actually led led both you know, the politics, Germany and, and kind of the individual people and teams that he worked with with a pretty tough hand. But of course, the ultimate thing that breaks their relationship is is Iraq. Um, I mean, that that is something that for both of them is a key policy. So Schroeder makes a huge, huge thing out of not going to Iraq with Germany. Um, to the point where, for instance, I knew people who went out on the demonstrations and on the anti-war demonstrations in Berlin and they did not do that again the next day simply because they saw Schroeder and other, you know, frontline SPD politicians walking with them. And that was not the idea. This was supposed to be some sort of, you know, far left pacifist, uh, green, you know, anti-war march. And, and then suddenly those mainstream politicians turned up that had just reformed the, you know, the, the social welfare system and cut it down and all the rest of it. And uh, but but Schröder wanted it to be known to German voters and the rest of the world that Germany was not going to Iraq, whilst of course for Blair it's exactly the opposite. Um, and that's something that in the in both of their memoirs they talk about. So Schröder, for example, calls uh, Blair the sorcerer's apprentice. You know, in in sort of um, uh, you know he sort of alludes to to Goethe's sorcerer's apprentice sort of unleashing forces he doesn't understand and then it all gets out of control and then you can't get it back um, and, and that's effectively how he see, sees Blair's involvement in, in Iraq and equally Blair in his own memoirs talks very much about the mischances of, of a lack of German intervention in, in politics and that's interesting that both of them see that as a, as a failing of the other and not just as a political failing but as a personal failing as well as a failing of leadership and presumably Iraq would have been perceived by Blair as an especial betrayal because Schroeder had been absolutely instrumental in the late 1990s in winning over um, Germany's really strong post-war aversion to um, military adventures and signing up to this sort of liberal intervention mission um, in the Balkans. And that, that was perceived as being a really pivotal moment i think in germany's understanding of itself as a as a power yeah that's absolutely right and wouldn't do and also in in the way that it was the first sort of international collaboration of germany with other western nation again since you know well god knows when really (laughs) probably go back all the way into the 19th century to see that um but yes you're right and then you know that's why they both thought that they were um, you know, going to be a, a working partnership. Both their, their domestic politics and their international politics seem to align. And then, um, you know, they quickly found out that that's not the case. And I think similarly to what we were saying about Call and Thatcher, their politics looked more similar than they actually were. Because once again, social democracy in Germany isn't necessarily the same thing as social democracy in, in Britain, not even under Blair who had sort of made it something, um, you know, very distinct and different to what it was before. But nonetheless, once again, they're happier to intervene, they're happier to, to guide society and to not only kind of, you know, intervene as a state in, in economy terms, but also in terms of, of society and then shaping the way that families live and, and what people do. And that, I think, is something that was quite alien to Blair as well, the idea that, you know, politicians should should sort of meddle in the in the way that 
people live their lives, you know, in the, in the way that German politicians are are happy to. Um, if we fast forward then a bit from from those two, does it get better after that? Once we're back to conservative uh, leanings, well, the only lasting load bearing prime ministerial chancellery relationship since then has been between um, Angela Merkel and um, David Cameron. And I've never got the impression that they disliked each other or that there was any pointed awkwardness because they were both far too professional, um, compromising, skillful, non-ideological politicians for that to let that kind of thing happen and the relationship mattered. But I think the relationship was pretty much pre-programmed to fail on political grounds, specifically Europe, right from the start. Because um, in 2005, which was the year Merkel became Chancellor, uh, Cameron won the Conservative leadership, partly uh, campaigning to pull the Tories out of the European People's Party in Brussels, which sounds like the sort of thing that would make most British voters' eyes glaze over because we have traditionally been very illiterate about the um, processes of the European Parliament. But this is something that really, really matters to German leaders because um, the European People's Party is the most powerful bloc in the Parliament. It's how the CDU tends to get things done on a European level. It's sort of a forum for dialogue. And that was a real kind of symbolic declaration by Cameron that he just didn't give a toss about um, sort of um, Germany's understanding of what it meant to work together within Europe. And then things just um, deteriorated. Yeah, I also um, feel that 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 is something that German politicians tend to take very personal, those those kinds of things, because they in turn don't understand the British point of view with that. I mean, you could go all the way back to people like uh, Helmut Schmidt, for example, the the perhaps most popular uh, social democratic chancellor that that's ever led Germany, and and he, for instance, had the same thing. He sort of felt, well, hang on a minute, you know, there, there's this there's this special relationship almost that that Germany thinks it has with Britain, which is an interesting thing in its in itself. That there's always this looking to Britain as a partner state, as a natural ally, and then it always. You know, Germany's always surprised by just how little interest there is in Britain in returning that, uh, and, and particularly, you know, with, with a view to European uh, integration. In in Germany's mind, there's always a natural kind of, yeah, of course, there's Britain, there's France, and, and you know, we're sort of this natural trio of states in, in Western Europe, and, and they just do not understand that Britain doesn't see it like that, or many people in Britain don't see it like that. And there's this natural sort of idea of... Um, you know, being an island nation, being being sort of somewhat on on the on the fringes of Europe, and German politicians tend to take that personally. I think when they find out that that interest is just not not there, and and people are so brazen about it as well in the eyes of Germans that they, you know, it feels a bit of a like a slap in the face when when they have all of these kind of ideological ideas of how to move forward, and then it finds just you know at best a shrug of the shoulders, at, at worst hostility in in Britain. And then I feel like I should do a little drum roll here, but um, then we get Brexit. And (laughs) one thing I hear a lot from uh, people on the right in Germany, and you also read it quite a lot in um, the Tory press in Britain, is that um, Brexit didn't need to happen. All Merkel had to do was give Cameron what he wanted when he turned up in uh, the autumn of 2015, i.e., 
at the height of the European migration crisis and just after um, one of the sort of eruptions of um, fear about um, the Eurozone and said, right, we want an emergency break on immigration to Britain and we want a, a red card on legislation in the European Parliament. Katja, do you, do you think Merkel could have stopped Brexit? Is there anything in that? Well, I think there's two problems with that. A, was the European Union even in a position or willing to you know, make those concessions because they're so fundamental to its own understanding of, of what it is? Uh, that I think, you know, making that concession in itself would have, they would have found that very difficult, I think, because ultimately you've you've got to, you know, have a think about what you actually, where you want to go with this. And then the freedom of movement, for example, is is a thing that they, they just cannot let go. They're not going to do it for Britain. They're not going to do it for anybody else. And and the idea that Merkel is the European Union, I think, has been overstated a bit. She cannot just barge in there and say, this is what I want to happen, whether she wants to or not. And there would have been obstacles in that in that way. Um, but for perhaps more fundamentally for our discussion here, I think that once again underestimates uh, the the principle behind Brexit. I think this idea that that you know it's it hinged on one or two individual points, and and had they been um, conceded, then you know the majority of of Brexiteers or people who voted for Brexit would have just turned around and said, "No, that's fine. Then we'll stay in the in the uh, European Union." I think misses the point. I think the point here is that there's fundamentally something about the British psyche that was happy with a an economic union with a market that made sense because that's the way that many people thought about it. You know, they they thought of it as a as a sort of pragmatic way of of trading with with European nations, and and that would be the end of it. And this this idea of, you know, that that we keep coming back to of intervening in in society and in the economy to the degree that that Europe, many European nations are happy to do, is totally alien, I think, to the British psyche in many ways, or to, uh, certainly large elements in in Britain. And that principle wasn't going to go away. So even if Merkel had been able to get some concessions, I think, out of the European Union for Cameron. I think it would have still missed the point that the European Union is moving in a direction that many people in Britain are uncomfortable with. And if it hadn't happened, then I think it would have just pushed it into the relatively near um, future. So I think we, we can sort of conclude at this point that there's there's obviously, you know, some of the awkwardness is down to party political differences and, and really fundamental, fundamentally different views of what the EU is and, and you know, what it should be. But is it possible that certain a certain amount of sort of you know frisson of conflict is baked into the relationship between prime ministers and chancellors, even when you know even during good times? Well, even if you overlook the odd difference of opinion over Germany's occasional attempts to crush its neighbours and achieve world domination, it is hard <laughs> to point to a time when a prime minister and a chancellor have been as close as Adenauer and de Gaulle or Merkel and George W. Bush say. And some of these problems go right back to the beginning. Yeah, I mean, when you look at, you know, the foundation of Germany, a, a topic that I happen to, you know, like talking about, as you, as you may know. May, um, may have written a book on. Yeah, may have done, may have done. Should we, should we, we should, this, this is what the podcast is for, isn't it? Marketing my book, blood and iron, blood yeah, and iron, should. blood and iron. <laughs> Um, yes, so <laughs> let's go back to that time of blood and iron then quickly. Um, so when um, Bismarck formed Germany in, in 1871 and became the first German Chancellor, I think there was actually, that might perhaps be the only time where there is some 
if grudging and if somewhat competitive, but there there is a degree of, uh, I think, parity between um, the the prime minister and the chancellor um, at various um, occasions. I mean, it's an interesting one because Bismarck is in power for so long that he basically overlaps with with all the British <laughs> greats, with Gladstone and, and Disraeli and, and Salisbury. Um, and of course, they've got very different policies. But it is interesting that, that all three of them take him very seriously as a as a sparring partner. Um, Disraeli's and Bismarck's relationship is, is particularly interesting, I, f- I find. The two of them actually met before uh, Bismarck became chancellor, when he was the uh, envoy to... Um, to France, the Prussian envoy to France, and he basically spent some time in Paris in 1862. Um, and there he bumped into Disraeli, who was at the time the leader of the opposition. And apparently, by all accounts, he talked to him quite openly and quite brazenly about the possibility of war between Austria and Prussia and kind of just bragged about how that was inevitable in any case. And, and once and for all, this, this kind of German dualism needed to be sorted out. And Disraeli was genuinely like, taken aback by just how out there Bismarck was with, with his views. I mean, walking around at a party as, the, as effectively the ambassador of Prussia and telling a British politician, a senior British politician, that he intends to wage war against you know another country if he can, in this case, Austria. Uh, impressed Israeli and he actually said later to the Austrian envoy you know quote be careful about that man he means what he says and I think that's where that relationship started but that that was just before um, Bismarck humiliated Britain Mm. in Schleswig-Holstein yeah but even before Germany had become a country um, Bismarck had absolutely outmaneuvered well it was Palmerston who was the, the the British prime minister at the time who had given um, guarantees to the Danes that um, he wouldn't tolerate any violence by what was then Prussia. And Bismarck just marched into Schleswig and, and took it, and there was nothing Palmerston could do about it. Yeah, so right the, from the start. But the, but the thing with that is, because there's such a complicated situation in Schleswig-Holstein, and the, the Danish king actually made a mistake here in that he basically started it <laughs> as it were i mean without going into the ins and outs of it too much but he basically claimed territory that was supposed to be half in and half out of the german uh, confederation um and just made it part of the new danish constitution that he'd signed and therefore he'd basically illegally annexed territory and that then allowed bismarck to step in there legally again you know via the the german confederation as wasn't a, such a, a prussian move or at least not on paper and it's interesting when you look at British newspapers at the time as well, how much sympathy there is for, for Prussia's case. So people actually think, you know, there is a case. Um, and from that angle alone, that sets a pattern where people kind of, you know, are wary of Bismarck and a little bit frightened of his extremism and of the way that he's just so, you know, brazen about everything. But they also admire that in, in, in some way. I mean, much has been made with, you know, going back to the Disraeli thing as well, much has been made of this warning, you know, of Disraeli towards the, the Austrian envoy that he needs to be careful of Bismarck. And then Bismarck famously um, later calls Disraeli once he is a, a prime minister and, and appears in Berlin to, to talk about at the Congress of Berlin in, in 1878 when they try and sort out the, the Eastern question, um, meaning the, you know, the solution of the, of the Ottoman Empire. Um, Bismarck sort of jokingly refers to a Disraeli as, as their alter Jude, the old Jew, 
and sort of says, mm. you know, this is where it's at. You need to talk to the old Jew. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, this sounds very sinister because of obviously what happened in the 20th century. Um, but at the time, you know, you, you get from that and from the way that Israeli talks about him that what he was saying, he wasn't being anti-Semitic per se. He was he was trying to use a stereotype that existed at the time of a cunning, clever, scheming, you know, politician. He, he was basically saying to the others, this this is the man you got to talk to if you want to get things done. This is the man who will make it happen. And equally, when, when Disraeli said, you know, be careful about that man, he wasn't saying... You know, he's a, he's an evil man, and nobody should ever talk to him. He was saying, you know, just just take him seriously. Make sure that you don't, you know, go past him. Basically, with that. Um, so, you know, but again, you could argue they're both actually, you know, quite similar in terms of their politics, um, but also, you know, to some extent, rivals. But overall, Bismarck does actually manage, I would say, out of the the German chancellors, perhaps to to hold the best and the most um, um, stable relationship with his with his British counterparts in his in his time because simply because they do respect him and take him seriously and and therefore, you know, haven't got that sort of animosity towards him because there's always this grudging you know we see eye to eye, respect towards him whether they agree with him or not. But it was never an easy relationship because um, I I kind of see, in in the context of this conversation I see German unification in. January 1871, almost as a, a Thatcher Cole moment between Germany and Britain, because um, I found this speech that um, Disraeli made to the Commons um, a few weeks later when he was leader of the opposition. And he was talking about um, the, the declaration of the German Empire, and he says, not a single principle in the management of our foreign affairs any longer exists. The balance of power has been entirely destroyed, and the country which suffers most and feels the effects of this great change most is England. And um, I feel that Bismarck, given that that was the sort of starting point in Anglo-German relations, played it really, really well mm. over the next couple and of And I think that, that is also what he's admired for in Britain. I mean, you see that at the end when he has to resign in 1890. And there's that famous cartoon, uh, you know, dropping the pilot, where, where you sort of see him in 1890 in the British cartoon. And I think it's in the Punch uh, magazine, where he walks, you know, off the ship as as an old wise you know, man who who had led the ship with a steady hand, and and people are almost anxious in Britain to see him go, because I think everyone senses that German unification then, you know, in 1871 had huge potential to mess everything up and and to threaten Britain, as well as obviously you know that you know we know it unfolds later exactly in that way that that rivalry between the two countries ends very badly, um, and Bismarck was I think seen as somebody who had held that seemingly impossible relationship together. Um, you know, for better or worse, even though people may not have agreed with him at all times, but they they certainly felt that he was trying to uh, live up to the to to his word, basically, or stick to his word that he would keep Germany a peaceful nation that that wasn't going to rival Britain or or cause it any any harm as such. I have um, a, a a sense that in the in the closing phase of a podcast getting into any 19th century diplomatic subject that ends with the word question is, is dangerous territory because we could just <laughs> spend half an hour going through the Eastern question or the Schleswig-Holstein question. Um, but I think we have to pull things to an end and just very quickly ask um, how it's going to be now. I mean, uh, Merkel is um, on her way out after the um, German Bundestag election later this month. 
And she's actually made one of her final foreign visits to Britain. She's had tea with the Queen. She's done a joint press conference with Boris Johnson. There's very clearly um, an effort to at least make things look as though the relationship is being patched up after Brexit. I, I think that I'm worked told. as well, to be honest. I don't think I, I don't think they ever had as bad a relationship as people made it out to be, to be honest, Boris Johnson and, and Angela Merkel. I mean, whilst, oh, you know, really? she... I, I don't think she has that sort of, obviously she hasn't got that sort of, you know, banter with him that, that other people do. You don't see, you know, Boris sort of slapping Angie on the back and, and them laughing and, and, and that sort of thing. You don't see that. But you do, I think, get the sense from the last visit that there was a genuine effort, I think, to... Um, uh, I'm not so sure. I've been I've been told... Uh, it, I've heard in Berlin that um, actually it's terrible. It's really, really bad. And um, she can't stand him. And things, um, worse than Trump was the, the phrase that mm. I heard in one conversation. Um, and that she, 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 she can barely bring herself to, to talk to him. In which case, they, they pulled themselves, both of them, together quite nicely. I just sort of thought, you know, when they were in the press conference together and, and sort of the things that they also agreed on. So, you know, kind of replacement programs for like Erasmus, for example, and, and some other things that you know people were quite worried about um, after Brexit not not so much economic things because I think they're more difficult to work out but this idea that at least symbolically so to speak you know those ties between Britain and Germany would be moving on would be moving forward I think there was an effort at least from both sides to try and, and make that work even if perhaps personally um, they they didn't get on but nonetheless you didn't see sort of scenes like you know that famous photograph where Angela Merkel is leaning down over Trump over the table glaring down at him you, you didn't get any of that so perhaps they just uh, pulled themselves together in front of the cameras a little bit um, better um, that's it for this week thank you for uh, listening to Tommy's and Jerry's our very first episode a reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at Tommy's Jerry's. Please do so and send us your questions and also your observations on anything we've said today. Our next topic will be on the rise of the workers. Why did left-wing politics catch on so much earlier in Germany and why did communism never really get a foothold in Britain? And with the German Social Democrats threatening to pull off a massive political upset at this month's general election, what's behind the revival of the centre-left and does it hold any lessons for Labour? We'll see you next time. Auf Wiedersehen from Berlin.